I am uh, starting a new series that I'm really excited about. So here's the thing. I love uh, preaching through books of the Bible, like just picking a book of the Bible and just diving deep into it, and, and I love that so much. And, and there's, there's a handful of books that I've wanted to like preach a series on, but they're not long enough for a series, right? They're just, the, the, the Bible has a, a just small handful of books that are just like little short, almost like post-it notes uh, of, uh, of a message that Paul or John or other people wrote uh, to different people or different churches. And, uh, and so these books tend to get neglected because it's hard to develop a whole series out of them. So I thought I would just put them all together into one series. And so there's four of them, these four, these four little letters uh, that we're going to spend time in over the next four weeks. The first one this week is we're going to be in it is Philemon, and then we're, we'll do Second and Third John, and then we'll do the Book of Jude. But these are like for most of you, if you have your Bible and you turn over there into the Book of Philemon, you'll see that it's just like one page in your Bible, unless you got one of those large print Bibles, and then it's a couple. But uh, but it is it is just it's just a really really short letter. So I'm calling it ancient tweets, uh, kind of getting these big ideas, these big messages out of some of the Bible's smallest books. And I'm really excited about this one today. I enjoyed studying this, this little book so much over the last few weeks. It, is, it, is, it packs a powerful, powerful punch. And it tends to be, because of its size, it tends to be so overlooked and so neglected in our reading and our study. It's like, how do we take this little bit of, of a you know, note that, that somebody sent, in this case, Paul, how do we take that and... and work that into something that's workable for us, and, and I hope to dive into it this morning and, and do just that. So let me just give you a little, little setup on this book that we call Philemon. <clears throat> this is written by Paul to a guy named Philemon about another guy that we're going to talk about, and his name was Onesimus. Onesimus, that's a fun word to say. Everybody say Onesimus. There you go, Onesimus. All right, so, uh, and, and here's the situation. Onesimus was a slave, and Philemon was... Onesimus's owner, all right? And before we kind of jump into what was going on there, let me just talk a little bit about slavery in the ancient world. I've kind of made the mistake in the past of, I think, maybe downplaying slavery in the ancient world, and actually it kind of looked two different ways. If you're talking about slaves in, say, uh, Israel, most of the, and this is what I've said before, and I've kind of probably been too general about it, uh, most of the slaves that were uh, in slavery in Israel were there uh, because, <coughs> excuse me, usually because of a debt uh, that they owed someone, and it was a way of them paying off their debt. Uh, they were um, generally, for the most part, treated somewhat fairly as, as kind of a member of the household, um, uh, that sort of thing. But there, you know, just as in life, there can be exceptions to that. There were there were slave owners who were uh, kind, and then there were slave owners that were harsh. And um, this is at a time, we're talking 2,000 plus years ago, this is at a time when slavery was not something that was really ever debated. It was just accepted as this is just the way life is. Nobody, there, weren't, there wasn't a big movement to go uh, abolish slavery or anything. It, it was just an accepted part of life in the ancient world, and it had been for thousands of years. Now, comparing that to the slavery that took place around the Roman Empire is it's quite a bit of a different picture. Most of the slaves that were uh, slaves in Roman households were there for uh, one or two one or two reasons. One, because uh, they were 
they were captured in wars against other nations and brought in, brought back to the homeland as slaves. Uh, it could be that uh, they were just simply born into that household of slaves. They've been slaves their whole life. Um, but especially in the Roman Empire, the treatment of slaves was, was somewhat different. It could be very harsh, very harsh. Um, oftentimes, um, slaves were uh, sexually exploited. And so it, it wasn't enough that you had to serve your, uh, your master in a way that was helpful to the household. You might be uh, called upon sexually at a moment's notice, right? Uh, it, was very, it was a very different, very difficult life. And in fact, you see uh, pretty, early, pretty, pretty soon after this letter was written, slave revolts began to happen in the, uh, in the nation, or in the, uh, king, the empire of Rome. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, that's what that whole movie is about, is this uh, giant slave revolt. So it was a harsh life. It was a harsh life. Now, one of the things that began to happen as the church began to spread throughout the Roman Empire is that Paul and others began to preach this message of, hey, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. And it was this kind of uh, very subtle, very subversive way of, of, of beginning the process of setting right some wrongs that were in the world. I, I don't think Paul had any illusion that he could change the way the Roman Empire did things. But he was like, I'm at least going to change my little corner of the world. I'm at least going to try to influence my little corners. I can't, I can't fix the entire problem worldwide, but maybe I can do some good in my circle of influence, right? And so that's where he began to really work things out in the church. And so what he began, even though he, he didn't go around, you know, setting slaves free or anything like that, he did say, here's the deal. When we come into the gathering of the church together as brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And so, so whether you are a slave owner or a slave yourself, you can come into this place and know that here we're all equals. We're brothers and sisters. And this, man, this, was, this very subtle teaching really began to rock some worlds and rock some, some uh, thinking about life. And so I've, I've mentioned this before in the past that you might have a situation where because uh, all the people in the church had different spiritual gifts. You might have somebody who was a slave in someone's household that maybe God had given the gift of prophecy and they were prophesying into the life of their owner. And how did you make sense of that in a world where, I mean, it, it literally was this kind of upside down kingdom and, and it was just this mess of a thing. But, but slavery was, was, a, was a reality and it was harsh and it was brutal in these cities and and Paul writes this letter that speaks into that. And the reason he does this is because this little thing happens. So Paul, at the time of writing this letter, he's in the city of Ephesus. He's in the city of Ephesus, and he's in prison. He's been, he's been jailed for his faith, and he's been in prison for quite a long time. He actually, actually, many, many months he's been in prison. And about the same time he's in prison, back in this other city about 120 miles away, Colossae, which is where uh, the book of Colossians comes from, Colossae is this guy named Philemon, and Philemon is uh, the head of a house church. 
the church meets. He's a wealthy guy, so he's got a large home. And the church meets in his house. And as the church meets in his house, uh, they're all gathered together. And he's kind of considered one of the leaders of the church. And as a wealthy guy in the Roman Empire, he has a household of slaves. He's a slave owner himself. And one of his slaves is a guy by the name of Philemon. A guy by the name of Philemon. Now, something happened. We don't know exactly what happened, but something happened to where Philemon felt it was necessary for him to run away. He needed to get away, get away from the situation that he was in. That was very uncommon for slaves to just kind of up and run away for no reason. If things were going well and there was nothing, you know, that horrible happening, generally speaking, the slaves wouldn't run away, but something must have happened. He, maybe he messed up. Maybe he, he made a mistake uh, that co- ended up costing his, his master some money or something, but he was afraid that he might be hurt, that he might be beaten, that who knows what might happen. And he just felt like, I got to get out of here. And so he runs away and he heads for Ephesus, 120 miles away. Now, one of the things that was big business during this time in history was slave hunting. If runaway slaves took off, then there was a whole industry around hunting them down and bringing them back to their owners, and oftentimes that would result in their execution, and it was, again, a very brutal world, right? And so Philemon, uh, the, this guy that Paul writes this letter to, Philemon uh, would have, once he realized one of his slaves had run off, he would have began to post notices and see if he could get his property back, his slave back. Now again, I, I, I know you're thinking, how is this guy one of the leaders of the churches, Right? You just got to remember that their sensibilities 2,000 years ago were so much different. Than, that is so repulsive and so, uh, such an affront to who we are as a people today. But it's just the water they swam in 2,000 years ago. They didn't know any different, right? But the gospel was beginning to take root in some really interesting ways and it began to change some hearts. And this is what this letter is about. So I'm guessing what happened was that Onesimus, the slave, he's out on the run. And he begins to realize he's being hunted. And he goes seeking someone who might be able to help him. And he hears word that Paul, this guy who used to be in his master's home helping to start a church and all this kind of stuff, that Paul is in, in, in prison in Ephesus. And so he reaches out to Paul for help. He reaches out to Paul for help. Now, Paul's put in this really awkward position because it's illegal for him to harbor a runaway slave. He can get in a lot. I mean, he's already in prison, right? And he can get in a whole lot more trouble by, by harboring a, a runaway slave and, and, and helping a runaway slave and that sort of thing. But he begins this relationship with Onesimus, who was a slave in Philemon's house, now run away. He begins this relationship with him where something happens that, that can only happen in the world of the church. And that is Paul or the Holy Spirit gets into Onesimus's head and into his heart, and Onesimus accepts Christ. And he decides, I'm, I'm actually tired of running. I'm tired of my life the way it has been. I'm tired of not just being a slave literally, but being a slave to my sin and everything else spiritually. I'm tired of it. So he gives his life to Christ, and then he becomes a huge help and a huge blessing to Paul. But again, Paul, it's illegal for him to harbor a runaway slave. And so Paul gets together with the other church leaders there in Ephesus, and they decide upon a plan. 
Paul had written a letter to the church at Colossae, and he needed to send that letter anyway. And so he's like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I think I'm just going to send an extra letter too. And this is the letter that we call Philemon. And this letter, once you get into it and we start reading it, you'll see that it wasn't just a personal letter that somebody handed to Philemon and walked away. It was a letter that was also directed to the church. Philemon was the primary recipient, but it was to be read aloud in the church. Paul didn't mind putting people on the spot, right? And so he, he sends this letter. And so Philemon, or I'm sorry, Onesimus the slave would have gone back to Philemon's household with someone else, with one of Paul's other co-workers, and presented himself and these letters to see what might possibly happen. And let's see what Paul writes in this letter. It's really, really powerful, really powerful. So it starts with Philemon, verse 1. There's no chapter, just verses. It says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably Philemon's son, and to the church that meets in your home. Read this part with me, will you? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pretty typical greeting for Paul in a lot of his letters. They kind of started off this way. Uh, but I want to I spend some time talking about that grace and that peace, but not yet. We're going to come back to it. So, so kind of put a bookmark on that for now, okay? Look at verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, again, he's talking to Philemon, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, again, get in your mind that, that Paul's co-worker and probably Philemon are, are standing before the congregation that meets in, I'm sorry, Onesimus, they're standing before the congregation that meets in Philemon's house. And they're reading this letter out loud. And I imagine Paul's co-worker reading the letter and, and just as Paul had instructed him to read it, read it and everything, it was almost like they would perform it as they were reading it. And, and, I, and in my mind, I think Philemon is kind of standing off to the side. I'm sorry, Onesimus is kind of standing off to the side and he's looking at Philemon. Or maybe he's just got his head down and he's just hoping Philemon is looking at him. And he's got to know, Philemon is mad at me. He probably wants to beat me or worse. This, is, this day may not end well for me. It may not end well for me at all. And he's start, probably starting to rethink, you know, Paul's plan. Was it really a good idea, to send me, good idea to send me back here? Couldn't he have just, you know, shuffled me off to some other city or something like that? And he's, he's rethinking the whole thing, right? But he's become this follower of Christ, and he's going to trust that Paul, his kind of leader, his spiritual mentor, has, has got his back, and this is going to work out, that the Holy Spirit is some way, in some way behind this. One of the things I want to, I love that he said, Paul says, this is what he's praying. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. And here's a guy that, that Paul, who wants one thing, Philemon, who probably wants a whole different thing. This could have been a really great opportunity for, for Paul to just send this scathing letter to say, hey, you're in Christ now, buck up you know, act right, whatever. He could, he could have just laid into him publicly in front of everybody and just said, you know, do the right thing here or whatever. But Paul doesn't do that. He's like, this is what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the gospel that we have in common will remind us of the good things that, that Christ has called us to. And so this is what I want to remind you of this morning is this, that don't write off, 
don't write off brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrong. Don't write off brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrong. I know good and well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a, in a little bit, but especially in a year like this year, especially in a year where, where who knows my, who, who might be our president this time next year, and, and we're leading up to all the campaigning and all the conventions and all the opinions and all the, uh, the, the crud storm of memes that are coming at us and everything else that's going to be happening. There, you are sitting in a room of people with many of whom which you disagree with on some pretty fundamental issues, right? But don't write off brothers and sisters in Christ that you think are wrong. And what I mean by that is this. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to make wrong people right. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to make wrong people right. We feel like we got to control the situation and get in there and argue our points and point out people's wrongs and all this kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, what I've found in my life and what many of you have found in your lives is that better or more often than not, if we just simply trust the Holy Spirit to do the work that we feel like we got to control, the Holy Spirit will go ahead of us and work out issues. Who here has ever had a situation where you felt like you needed to have a hard conversation with somebody about something they had done that was wrong? And you committed it to prayer, and that person ended up seeking you out before you had an ch- opportunity to seek them out. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to make wrong people right. And this is the thing. This is the big point for this part. Disciples build bridges, not walls. Disciples build bridges, not walls. As disciples of Christ, we do not ever put walls up between us and, and other brothers and sisters in Christ, we are constantly looking for ways to build bridges. That for you to cease fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ, it should carry the same weight in your life and in your heart as divorce. It should be something that you would never, ever consider unless it was under the most extreme of circumstances. That disciples build bridges between each other, not put up walls between each other. And yet we live in this world where it's so much easier, it's so much cooler, it's so much more tweet-worthy to put up walls between us and people that have offended us or between us and people that we disagree with. And we've got to stop putting up these figurative walls between us and people that are also children of God and trust the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Instead, do the work of building bridges. And this is what Paul begins to do throughout the rest of this letter is he's going to do some bridge building right now. Look what he says next in verse 8. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, although in Christ, <laughs> I love Paul, therefore in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal, appeal to you on the basis of love. It is, here, here's how he's coming to him. He says, it is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. He's like, here's the deal. I'm not coming to you as Paul the apostle. I'm not coming to you as Paul the church planter. I'm not coming to you as, as, as Paul the, the God's emissary to the Roman world. I'm not coming to you as Paul the bishop. I'm not coming to you as Paul the anything. I'm just this old dude in jail. That's it. And this guy, 
that I've come to love, this Onesimus. He's become my child in the faith. He gave his life to Christ while I was still in prison. I come to you just as, just as a brother in Christ. Forget all my titles. Just coming to you as a brother in Christ right now. The only thing I, that needs to be between you and me is the knowledge that we serve the same Lord and we share the same gospel. That's it. That's my only appeal to you. And I'm coming to you on behalf of Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, that's a really tricky thing that in English gets totally lost because uh, Onesimus' name literally means useful. It was a pretty common slave name. If, if, you, if you gave a, a slave infant a name, you might name them something like Onesimus, something that meant useful or handyman or something like that, you know, some, somebody that was going to serve you and work for you or whatever. And, and Paul says, I know, I know at one time you were looking at Onesimus like he was completely useless to you, but he's Onesimus. He's useful, again, and not just to you, but he's useful to me. He's useful in the kingdom of God. He's useful as a peer as, as in a world where there is no slave or free, there is no Jew or Greek or male or female, he is useful to, to the work of God. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 12. He says, I'm sending him who's my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place and helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps, just perhaps, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Paul, I love, I love Paul's outlook on this whole thing. He's like, you know, even the worst of situations, even the most awkward, most tense situations in our life, Sometimes, maybe God's not the cause of those situations, but God has a beautiful way of working in those awkward, tense, conflicting situations and bringing something beautiful out of something that was potentially very dark and destructive. He's like, maybe, maybe this was God's plan in all this. Maybe he knew that you'd be able to receive him back into your life forever, and not just as a slave, but as a brother, a true brother in Christ. Paul says, he's very dear to me but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Again, here's, this is a little weird dig that Paul kind of gets in here because one of the things about slaves at that time in the world, uh, and we see uh, shadows of this, uh, kind of uh, um, uh, echoes of this, even into more modern slavery, uh, even into our nation's antebellum slavery and stuff like that, is that a slave was not considered a man. A slave was forever a boy or a child. They had no legal right as a man. In fact, all throughout ancient uh, literature, and even at some points throughout our, our own scripture, slaves are very, very, very seldomly referred to as men or women. They're almost always referred to as boy or child. And Paul here gives us a little thing. He says, he's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as what? A fellow man. Onesimus is not just your boy. He's not just your child. This is a man of God. As a man of God, a fellow a man, a man such as you are, and as a brother in the Lord. That's the beauty of the church. 
That's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that no matter what your background is, no matter what your job is, no matter what your income is, no matter what your education is, when you come into this place and you sit with these brothers and sisters, none of that matters. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the things I love so much about, even in, in, in an area of church life like our elder board, we have elders on that board that come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. And yet, we have equal voices on that board. Equal voices. Why? Because we're all brothers. We're all brothers. Now, look what he says next. Verse 17. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. He's like, here's, here's it was very common for a slave uh, if they did run off, they might grab a handful of things or a little bit of cash or something to help them start off their journey and kind of steal from their, their master in that way. Or, again, it could have been that he made a financial error that cost his master some money, and that's the reason he was on the run. But Paul's like, here's the deal. Don't, don't worry about that. I got this. I got this. Whatever, whatever he's charged, whatever he's cost you, you charge it to me. He said, and then he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Paul would do this often. Whenever there was a point that he wanted to emphasize strongly in a letter, he would take, it, take the pen away from the guy who was writing, you know, he was dictating to and who was writing it all down for him, and he would say, no, no, I'm, you'll see this is my handwriting. This is my handwriting. I'm writing this with my own hand. Charge this to me, and I will pay it back. And he says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Earlier in, that le- in the letter, he said, I love what you're doing, Philemon, because you've refreshed the hearts of all the people in that congregation. He's like, now I want you to refresh my heart. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. So Paul doesn't ask for Philemon to just simply set Onesimus free. He wouldn't presume that. Again, this was a world very far removed from the world that we live in. But he's like, this is what, I, this is what I'm hoping that you'll, you'll do even more than I'm asking here. I'm asking you to receive him back as a brother, but I'm, asking, but I'm, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to do even more than I ask. And maybe what he meant by that is that maybe um, Philemon would set Onesimus free, give him his freedom. Maybe he meant that, as he referenced earlier, that he would send him back to Paul so he could continue to be of help to Paul. But whatever the case, he's just like, I just know that the Holy Spirit's traveling with this letter, and he's going to convict you, and he's going he's to have you do even more than what I'm asking here for you. Now, I want to spend a, little, spend a little bit of time right now on this one point. That disciples, as disciples, we're called to live a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life. And really, that's what this letter is all about. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in two, he was stretched out in two directions, vertically and horizontally, right? And a lot of times when we think about our spiritual lives, we focus on that vertical part, that part that is working on our relationship, the relationship between us and God. What can I do to you know, strengthen my relationship with God? How can I spend more time in the Word, more time in prayer, more time going to church and worshiping? Or what, but I want to strengthen that vertical relationship, that, that relationship between me and God. But the cross-shaped life, you, you, you want a $10 word? There's, a, there's, there's this word I love that, that means cross-shaped. It's cruciform, the cruciform life. The cross-shaped life also calls us to stretch ourselves 
horizontally, to be the bridge between one brother and another, one sister and another. We're called to work on this absolutely, but we're also called to be peacemakers in this world. And Paul puts himself right in the middle of what could have been a really potentially ugly battle. And he stretches himself out horizontally and he serves as the peacemaker, that cross-shaped person, that cruciform person, bridging the gap between two parties who are at odds with each other. And we are called to do that. We have to live this faith that is both vertical and horizontal. Now, we don't live in a world, um, at least in our nation anymore, where slavery is a reality. There are, some, there are still some forms of slavery that are out there. Most of it is sexual slavery and some things like that that are going around. There's a lot of labor slavery that still exists out there, very under-the-radar type stuff, but it still exists. But the by and large reality for every, all of us in this room is that slavery is not a part of our life. And so how do we apply this to our own lives? And this is what I want to challenge us to do this morning. Look for ways that you can be not just working on that vertical relationship between you and God, but working on the horizontal relationships in your life too. How can you do cross-shaped living in your life? And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw out one option this morning. There's a billion options you could think of. There's, there's options that right now the Holy Spirit will probably speak to you about apart from my sermon. I'm gonna throw out one option, okay? And I referenced it earlier. And it's in this political atmosphere that we live in. You're like, Jeff, do you really have to go there? Yeah, I do. Get ready. Here we go. Ready? This is, this is what I mean by that. Now buckle up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to drop a bomb on you guys this morning, okay? Don't, don't look around. Keep your eyes forward. You very well may be sitting next to a Democrat. You very well may be sitting next to a Republican. All right? I know. Eyes forward, okay? <laughs> right now, judgment is already running through your head. It's just like, oh, my gosh, who are they? Who are they in the room? I got to know who they are, right? Right? And this is, this is what I know about living hope. In fact, as I've talked to other pastors, I think this might be more true of living hope than it is the average church. I think, I'm, I haven't surveyed and I don't plan on surveying, surveying. I think the split between Dems and Republicans in this church is probably close to 50-50. Pretty close to 50-50. So how do we do church life? You guys watch the news. You guys read the, whatever, the blogs and the papers and the everything else. You, you guys... You guys see how this world, how our nation is engaging or actually lacking of engagement with each other? How it's just so ugly and how it's so, it's, it's depressing. Is, is anybody else depressed by the state of things in our nation? Yeah. Yeah, like four of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So, like, it is, it is horrible and it is depressing. And this is what I think our nation needs more than anything right now. And I'll tell you what it's not first. What our nation does not need more than anything is a Republican president or a Democratic president. That's not our greatest need. That's not our greatest need. Our nation's greatest need is for people 
to model healthy conversations about all this stuff. Because they're not happening. Or at least we're not being shown them anyway. And I think there's no better place for this to start than right here among brothers and sisters. Because you have, you have this choice set before you. You guys know we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and not only is there no male or female and slave or free and Jew or Greek, there's no Democrat or Republican in the kingdom of God. We're all one in Christ, right? You guys get that. So what does that look like for us to live that out in, actual, in ways that are actual, actually healthy? How do we model healthy conversation? And I'm not saying we're, we're not going to plan some sort of weird political meetup where we just start hashing out our differences. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying... What does a healthy conversation look at? Because if all you're doing is saying, well, this is what I think, and then you're over here going, well, this is what I think, and then it's like, well, you can go to hell, and you can go to hell too, right? Amen, see you next week at church, right? (laughs) Right, like that's not a healthy conversation. Can we just agree that's not a healthy conversation? This is what a healthy conversation looks like. It looks like you trying to understand that person that you disagree with because everybody's coming from some angle. Everybody's got an, everybody's opinion is not just like it's real easy when somebody's opinion is, is different than yours just to just assume well they have that opinion because bless their hearts they're idiots right <laughs> but it could be that the reason they have that opinion is deeply rooted in something that's going on in their own lives some experience that they had or that their parents had or whatever something that happened at work or to one of their kids, or, or I mean, it could be rooted in something deeply important and meaningful to them. And so rather than just trying to get your point across, the world is full of people trying to get their points across. We don't need even one more, not one more. But we do need some people who actually shut their mouths and listen. Just listen. It's one of the most beautiful gifts you can give to somebody is to just sit, ac- sit across from them and actually listen. You hear somebody say something. So let's just say, let's just say you're, uh, you're a Republican in the room. And one of your brothers and sisters in Christ spouts off something about universal health care. Oh, and it just rolls all over you. And you're just, oh, you're just so upset about it. And oh, my gosh, I, got I, I didn't realize my church was full of idiots and all this kind of stuff. And you're, you're just, you're just, you, just, you just have all these, these, these uh, guttural feelings about this topic that's come up. And you, you have a choice at that point. You have a choice to go, well, actually, that won't work because da 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 right? Or you can go, tell me why you think that. And, I'm, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, I literally want to know why, why is that important to you? Why is that issue important to you? I'd really like to hear your heart on that. And I think when we begin to understand, this is why Congress is not getting anywhere because they could give a rat's tail about anybody's motives. They only want to pass their own agendas. And when we begin to actually listen to each other and understand one another, you know what happens when you understand someone, understand the motives you've listened to and you understand the motives of somebody you disagree with? You know what really beautiful thing happens? Compromise. Compromise. You begin to go, oh, I guess there's more than just my point of view in this world. And maybe it's okay for me to give a little bit so that someone else can experience the things that they're looking for in this world too. And this beautiful thing begins to happen. 
And I don't think there's any better place in the world that could potentially model this than the church. What if living hope became known, and hopefully it already is, I don't know. What if it became known as a safe place for anyone, no matter who they voted for for president, no matter what their political agenda is? You'll find in this place there's no, there are no political parties. There's just brothers and sisters in Christ. When we begin to, and, and again, that's just one option, just one. There's a million more that maybe the Holy Spirit might be impressing on you right now. But look for ways not just to focus on you and your relationship with God, which you should focus on, but also to be that bridge between. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, that wasn't just something because he needed to fill in one more line. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. We're to call, we are called to go out and be peacemakers. Peacemakers. It's an important thing. It's a big deal. Now look what he says next. This is how he closes out the letter. He says, and one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. He's like, I know you've been praising, praying that I'd be released from prison. It's coming. I'll be released soon. Go ahead and prepare a guest for me. I'm coming to see you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then he says this. Read it with me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's the end of the letter. Before we close out, I just want to focus for just a second on that idea of grace. Because here, that's the end of the letter. We don't know how that went down after, after he delivered that letter. Philemon in his own house is being asked upon to show mercy to someone that legally he didn't need to show mercy to. Did Philemon just like, ah, I don't think so, wad it up and throw it away? No, because we still have it. So we can assume that it went pretty well. In fact, we can more than assume. I, I can pretty much guarantee you that, that Philemon heard this, was convicted by the Holy Spirit, and did something to, to, that was gospel-shaped, cross-shaped in the process, and, and was, was merciful in some way to his guy Onesimus. I don't know exactly what he did, but this is what we do know. There was another guy. This is outside the Bible. Just a little history for you. There's another guy. Uh, a guy by the name of, where is it? Ignatius. Ignatius of Antioch. And he was a, a contemporary of these guys. He lived right around the same time as these guys. And, he, and so there's, there's these early church fathers who would also write letters that aren't in Scripture, but we still have access to them and we can read their letters. And a lot of them are really powerful. This guy wrote a letter. And in, in his letter, Ignatius of Antioch, he refers to the bishop in Ephesus, Onesimus, the bishop. Only in the kingdom of God can a slave become a bishop. Only in the kingdom of God can grace penetrate and move in such ways that the lowest of low can become a leader of leaders. Only in the kingdom of God. <laughs> That, that breaks me up just thinking about that. This is a guy shaking in his boots, literally hoping that his day goes well, listening to this letter being read, hoping that his master is merciful to him. And he is embraced as a brother, as a fellow man, 
allowed to grow in his faith to the point that he probably became a pastor of his own congregation and allowed to grow even more in his faith to where the point that he became a pastor of pastors. From slave to bishop, that only happens in the kingdom of God. I want to talk to you this morning just for like a minute. That for those of you who are like new to this, and you're, maybe this is your first time here and you don't even know why you came this morning. Whatever slavery is existing in your life, whatever thing you're in bondage to, whether it's your own sin, whether it's your circumstances, whether you're a victim of God knows what, God is in the business of transforming victims into brothers. He's in in the business of transforming sisters into saints. He's in the business, I just had to do an S thing there. He's in the business of all of this. Like God is is the God of our promotions. Even in a world that wasn't ready for slavery to go away, Paul had the wisdom and the love of Christ in him to go, it still doesn't mean we have to be okay with it in here. There are a lot of injustices in this world that we may feel powerless to do anything about, but it doesn't mean we have to be okay with them in here. The world shows us a way to act and a way to talk to one another, and it is jacked up. But we don't have to be okay with it in here. Whatever your situation is today, whatever your background, whatever your sin, whatever your whatever's been done to you, whatever you've done. It's time for you to become a brother or a sister. It's time for you to walk into the family of God and just see how God transforms lives. Just see. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you that... um, Against all odds, you let this weird little letter survive for 2,000 years to where we're still reading it today. I thank you so much that, that you put in the heart of your apostle Paul to go above and beyond what was required of him legally, above and beyond what was expected of him socially, and to reach into a difficult situation and see if maybe the gospel couldn't transform it into something really beautiful. Thank you. And God, let that be an example to us. And God, if there's anybody in the room right now that is just like, I I, want to be a part of a group of people who have given themselves to God and that that my past won't be held over my head, that the labels that have been given to me will not be my label here. God, I pray that you would just draw them into uh, into your presence that you would just draw them into life with you, God, that your grace would transform them. God, God, there's still some things in my life that I'm a slave to, as is the the truth of everybody else in this room. And um, I pray that you would just continue this process of setting me free from all those things and help me realize the freedom that I have in you and embrace it, claim it, and live it help me help others to do the same. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God is good, amen? Hey, listen, third Sunday of every month is Baptism Sunday. If you're a new follower of Christ and you want to follow him and, and get baptized, reach out to me, put it on a connection card, we'll reach back out to you, whatever, but let us know you want to be baptized. Third Sunday of every month, we'll do it, all right? Everybody have a great week. We'll see you next week.